This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StackCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. On today's show, our last before the playoffs start, we're going to talk about the nine things that change in October. We have to talk about what in the world is going on with the Milwaukee Brewers, the post-Christian Yelich Milwaukee Brewers. Um, I want to dig into Tim Anderson's bizarre season. The one playoff series we already know is probably Yankees and Twins, so I guess we should talk about that for a minute. And of course, we'll finish off by uh, talking about the playoffs and our postseason picks. But first, postseason baseball is not really regular season baseball. I guess that should go without saying, but every year people get shocked that there's, I don't know, more strikeouts and lower batting averages and more relievers. And that shouldn't be surprising to anybody because that's just the way the game has always been played. But I thought it'd be interesting to dig into a bunch of the numbers. But before we do that, Matt, are you ready for postseason baseball? Are you are you ready for the end of the season? How many Tigers White Sox double headers do you want to watch? I am I'm ready. I love September baseball, but actually as it turns out this September hasn't been quite as exciting as past years, although oddly this this final weekend could be exciting if the Brewers do catch the Cardinals. We end up with a game 163. The three-way tiebreaker looked possible in the AL wild card. It's looking a little less possible, but it's still well, we don't on the table. We three-way tiebreaker. I know. We just, but we just need like a tiebreaker. That's true. But either way, uh, I'm ready. If you haven't heard, we are doing a special StatCast broadcast of the American League wild card, myself and Jason Benetti and Eduardo Perez. On Wednesday, somewhere, I assume probably Oakland at this point, on ESPN2. Uh, so we strongly encourage you to watch that. It'll be a, a lot of fun. And, um, you know, part of the reason I looked at all this stuff for what changes in October is because we can use this on the show. And we have nine reasons. Some of these I think you'll know, and they're not surprising, but it's fun to put some numbers to them. Uh, the first one I think is pretty clear. Relief pitching takes over baseball. We've seen this, obviously, We've talked about for this a while. The podcast. But, uh, but the numbers are cool, right? Last season... Uh, in the postseason, relievers got up to almost an even fifty percent of innings last year were pitched by relievers. That had never happened before. And maybe this that's a tipping. And point. Maybe this will be the first year where more than fifty. In fact, I'm going to go out on a semi limb and say this will be the first year that more than fifty percent of relie- innings are pitched by relievers. That's, was in. that's not a limb. The, the The Minnesota rotation isn't great. The Yankees are openly talking about not having a traditional. Like the only team who has traditional starters right now, like strong ones, are the Astros, and even they don't really have a fourth starter. Uh, at this, if if the World Series is Astros Nationals, this won't oh happen. Nationals, you're right. Yeah. I forgot. If, about if the World Series is Astros Nationals, this won't happen. Yes. If it is Astros Nationals, it will happen. I, uh, I think that's fair. And as I as I kind of joked in the piece, how many years ago does it seem like when it was when Jack Morris went into the tenth inning in the Game Seven of a World Series? It feels like a different sport. It was literally a different century. It was 1991. <laughs> I cannot imagine any scenario uh, where that happens ever again. A lot of this stuff is going to build up to why offense goes down in October, right? More relievers. More days of rest. You shouldn't be surprised to know that fastballs get faster. Um, if you look at what has happened, we have 11 years of pitch tracking data now. In the regular season, the average on four-seam fastballs in 11 years has been 92.7. In the postseason, it's 93.7. That doesn't sound like a lot, 
but if you look at it uh, in terms of percentage of four seamers thrown at least 95 miles an hour, I thought this was kind of fun. If you look at the extremes, in the regular season in 2008, the first year we have data, 16% of fastballs, four seamers, were thrown 95 miles an hour or more. In the, in the postseason last year, 51 percent that's that's a lot of velocity it makes sense obviously only the best pitchers are pitching there is no 17th guy on the baltimore pitching staff here these are like the best guys and the best teams throwing fewer innings with more days of rest velocity obviously uh that's a big deal as a group major league hitters this year are hitting 243 with a 423 slugging against 95 and above and 282 with a 529 slugging 94 and below it's harder to hit faster pitches. And then on the same note, uh, the curveballs have more spin and they're more plentiful. You know, that's it's the same idea. Pitchers are fresh. You get better pitchers with better breaking balls, throwing more rest, uh, and that's that's yeah. the recipe. And while there's not a while more spin doesn't necessarily mean better curveball, there is a pretty strong correlation. Similar to velocity and fastballs, spin and curveballs, there is a a correlation between higher spin, more effective pitches. The, the takeaway from all of this is just that October is more. Like everything is is more. It's baseball turned up to eleven. Um, it is true. Each year, there's two trends here, right? Each year, if you look at the difference between regular season curveballs and postseason curveballs, there's a little bit of extra spin. And the second trend is that that gap has increased each of the four previous years we have tracking. First in 2015, it was just an extra 50 RPM, not that much. Then an extra 93. Then an extra 125. And last year, the gap was an extra 169 RPMs of spin. Uh, that tells you a little bit about the teams who are there and the kind of pitchers that they favor. That by itself isn't super interesting, but the difference here is in the outcomes because, as Matt said, high spin does not necessarily guarantee success, but if you look at it across the board, there's a clear pattern. So the way I looked at this was last year, 2018, the regular season average curveball spin was about 2,500, and in the postseason, it was about 2,650. So there's your gap, right? And if you look this year at the outcomes on curves above and below those marks, there's a pretty clear difference. If you throw a curveball above 2650, uh, you see a 33% whiff rate, 202 average, 318 slugging. And if you throw a curveball below 2500, 29% whiff rate, 246 average, and a 426 slugging. More curve spin doesn't guarantee success, but it also correlates pretty well. It is so hard to hit all the time. It's especially hard to hit in October. <laughs> um, and there were more curves. Last year, we saw a record 14% curves in the postseason. This cannot all be attributed to Lance McCullers, uh, but that is what he likes to do when he's healthy. The the other the, the other parts, and a lot of this is broken down in a piece that Mike did on uh, on the site uh, on Friday on MLB.com. You know, not surprisingly, when you get look at all this, uh, offense goes down, right? That's that's not really that shocking. But the ones that really stand out to me that's more that most interesting is that uh, defense appears to get better. Yeah, I thought this was cool. And I guess this also aligns with you. The other one you have is there are more shifts, and I don't think this is an accident. I think that defense is getting better and converting more ground balls and fly balls into outs than they do during the regular season. Almost certainly to me aligns with the fact that teams are probably shifting more aggressively. Like you know, I'm sure in a regular season game, if you're up five runs in the eighth. You may sure. not shift, or you may just may do it a little more lazily. Whereas in the postseason, even with a five-run lead in the eighth inning, you're laser focused. You're not messing around. So it, I think exactly. there's like a correlation between more shifts and higher percentage of batted balls being turned into outs, and the fact that teams will do it 
regardless of the situation. And, and again, a lot of this is just selection bias. You know, whoever you think has the worst defense in baseball this year, they're not playing in October, right? The very good defenses are. Um, and I thought this was interesting. There's not really like a postseason defensive run save, like it doesn't work that way, but we do have StatCast data for this. And I looked at this a couple of different ways. And the first one I looked at was just very simple. Um, does batting average on ground balls go down in October? Yes, batting average. Uh, it's fine for this because there's no walks, few extra base hits on grounders. It's just how often does this turn into a hit? And it does. Over the last four years in the postseason, it drops an average of 24 points. Like you said, better defense, better positioning. Um, last year, it dropped by 16 points. And I think that's true. There's better skill, but also... The outfield was kind of cool. If you look at fly balls and line drives, obviously excluding home runs, and I set a minimum of at least 300 feet just to try to get to ones that would be catchable for an outfielder. Uh, last year, in the regular season, those balls had a 223 average, and in the postseason, they had a 187 average. If you're not hitting the ball out, it's really, really hard to find success. This is a big part of uh, you know, the narrative last year. Right? It was, oh, the Red Sox were like this singles-hitting machine team. It wasn't really true. They just kind of were like shockingly good with two outs and two strikes, which is not really sustainable. But this is the point. You have a really hard time against amazing pitching and good defense stringing a rally together. Like it's just not going to happen in the same way it will in, you know, June in Miami or whatever. You might as well try to crush a home run because that's your best bet. Uh, and that's what we've seen. And the other the other really interesting one uh, before we move on to the Brewers that I wanted to highlight is that pass balls and wild pitches go up in the postseason. Yeah. And that's kind of wild to me. Well, we saw this last year with Yasmani Grandal when he was still with <laughs> So you're the saying guy. this is all – Well, it's, it's not, but this is why he came up, right? And he you know, had a disaster of a, a postseason last year. Um, but this kind of aligns with what I wrote about catchers a couple weeks ago. It's just harder to be a catcher now, right? More velocity, more spin. And then if you think about it, well, all that goes up in the postseason – so it would stand to reason, like, there's more pass balls and more wild pitches. And not not a lot, right? Um, but I don't put all of that on Grandal. It also happened with the Astros last year, too. Like, they're, it's just harder to be a catcher than ever, especially in the postseason. So the takeaway from all this, offense goes down, but it's not because batters don't care. I don't know what they the narrative is. They hit the ball is. harder. They hit the ball harder. Hard hit rate on fly balls and line drives goes up. I think that's a reaction to this. Better hitters, obviously, again. Um, but they know... It's you're not likely to find success if you hit the ball and it stays in the yard. And one thing I think we're going to see as a part of this this postseason is potentially more gamesmanship about like announcing what the Brewers did last year, where they had what's his name pitch for like one batter or two batters. We may see teams announce their starting pitchers a lot later. They may we may see pitchers openers used on pitchers you wouldn't expect. I think this is going to be like we're going to see the next level of gamesmanship when it comes to relievers versus starters versus you know just outgetters can i say that just happened to me because i was in chicago we were doing this white Sox indians game and hector santiago was scheduled to pitch and we're in uh renteria's office the manager of the white Sox. it's like three hours before the game and i said to him you know how how much you think you get out of santiago tonight it's like well actually we're going to use carson fulmer as an opener i haven't told anybody that yet <laughs> it's like oh cool i'm sure the uh, other team's hitters are very thrilled about this uh so this this i'm i'm very interested to to see how that manifests itself because, as you noted, other than the Astros and really, I guess the Dodgers have a, a, a clear front three and the Nationals, yeah. a lot of these teams only have one or two guys you know you feel good about starting a postseason game. One of those teams is the Brewers. <laughs> Name the Brewers rotation is a very fun game. So here's the thing about the Brewers. Uh, they are 19 and four in September. They, they, this, everything about this is insane, which is why I'm laughing about it. Uh, Christian Yelich got injured on September 10th. So if you include the game, uh, it was very early in the game when he left. They are 14 and two since losing arguably the best player in the National League, which is absolutely ridiculous. On September 5th, 
their wild card their playoff odds were 5.6% and their odds of winning the National League Central were 0.6%. They were seven and a half games out. So if they do win the Central, which they very much might, that does not mean that the odds are wrong. It means that this just shows how ridiculous all of this is. The Cubs have absolutely collapsed. The Cardinals have been playing like fine. Uh, and the Brewers have taken advantage of what we've been saying for weeks, a very charitable schedule. Um, sure, they started off with, with six games against Houston and the Cubs. Okay. Four at Miami, three at San Diego, four versus San Diego. Three three, no, three at St. Louis. Oh, excuse me. Which ended with that, if you recall, that was that weekend series where Ryan Braun. Yes. They split the first two games and they were down in the ninth. Yes. And, on Sunday, and then Ryan brought in a grand slam to give them the win. And then they got th- they had three versus Pittsburgh, who's given up. They just swept three in Cincinnati, and they get the end of the season three in Colorado. Now anything can happen in Coors Field, but the Rockies have stopped playing weeks ago. Uh, they, I guess, have taken advantage of this incredible. For sure. I mean, I am interested to see if they can keep this going in Colorado because Colorado is just a tough place to get a sweep. Yeah. So for them to really, I mean, for them to try and catch the Cardinals they're one game back as we record this on, on Friday afternoon they basically need to sweep and kind of hope that the cards go two and one against the Cubs uh Joe Madden has already said that he's not going to play and his he, a- and he doesn't care he doesn't care <laughs> and I was thinking about this and I was like you know well the Cubs and Cardinals traditionally have a much bigger rivalry and you think oh the Cubs why would the Cubs want to help the Cardinals out in the last couple of years the Cubs and Brewers have yeah. a really heated rivalry so my guess is on like a personal level the current Cubs couldn't care less about helping out the Brewers versus the, the Cardinals. The, the whole thing about being a spoiler is if, if you help one team or you hurt one team, you're helping somebody else. You know, yeah, it's like, the idea of like it's, it sort of like gives you something to play for. You yeah. feel like, what well, also the, the Cubs are, I mean, Rizzo's been playing hurt, Bryant's yeah. hurt, Baez's Baez's hurt. hurt. It's like they're not really this, they're not really the same team anyway. The lineup they had last night against the Pirates was like, you know, <laughs> it was a, a B game in, uh, in spring training kind of lineup. But anyway, back to the Brewers. Uh, the Brewers, so how, how, right? Just, Literally, how in the world are they doing this? So if you look at their hitters, you'd expect them to have gotten worse since Kristen Yelich has been out. And they have, but I have to say, not by as much as I would have thought. Uh, through the end of August, they had the 15th best weighted on base in baseball at 325, which that feels right. Yelich has been great. Uh, Lorenzo Cain has not been great. Arcia has not been great. So, like, you know, there's a lot of variance within their team, but all told, they were a middle-of-the-pack uh, offensive team that makes sense in september that 325 weighted on base has dropped only to 318 so slightly worse but not as much of a drop as i would have thought to well, be honest i mean yelich at the time of injury was on a rate basis the best hitter in the national league yeah so it's not it was I mean, kind of a big loss i mean grandal has been good uh Hira has been has been pretty good yes um but okay so like offense has held steady slightly fallen back so you must be thinking to yourself, what has happened to the pitching? And that is exactly what the answer is. Through the end of August, they had the 19th best weighted on base at 328 and the 18th best ERA. Sounds about right to me, like a slightly below average pitching team. In September, they have the second best weighted on base at three at 268 and the best ERA in all of baseball at 275. And I didn't look this up exactly, but I'm pretty sure something exactly similar happened last year as well. Um, if... <laughs> If you could make the entire season out of September rosters and you gave that to Craig Council, they would probably win 150 games every single year because this is exactly what he uh, excels at. I always say um, I hate the idea of the manager of the year award because there's no way to actually know who's good or bad. I feel like he's making a pretty good case for what's happening uh, with this roster. So you got to look into this and say, how is this group of pitchers who let's charitably say does not have any big names and didn't really acquire any doing this. And there are some 
phenomenal stories here. I mean, if you look at the best relievers in baseball since July 22nd, I know that sounds like a random date. I'll explain why I used it in just a second. You looked at everybody who has faced at least 50 batters, and you look at expected weighted on base, which measures quality of contact and amount of contact. Uh, the the three best relievers in baseball have been, hey, Seth Lugo's number one. I knew he, I knew he was doing well, but okay, wow. Uh, number two, Liam Hendricks. Yeah, cool. That makes sense. Number three, Nick Anderson, who we've talked about a lot. Uh, and number four is Tyler Rogers, who we've talked about a lot. Number five, of all relievers in the world, Brent Suter, <laughs> who does not throw hard and just came off of Tommy John surgery. Uh, we're going to skip number six. And number seven is Drew Pomerantz, <laughs> who was a failed starter with San Francisco. Those two guys have been five, uh, two of the seven best relievers uh, in baseball. And I really want to dig into a couple of them for, for a second here because there's some interesting stats. Uh, Brent Suter, who is a fascinating human being. He's, he's an Ivy Leaguer who's trying to get... Harvard. Uh, yeah, right. With Ivy Leaguer. So he's trying to get his teammates uh, basically to save the earth. He's trying to, to get rid of plastics and he's convincing them to use uh, recyclable water bottles and all this, which is amazing and admirable. Um, does not throw hard. He throws... The second, he's in the second percentile of fastball velocity at 87.9 miles an hour. He had been mostly a starter with the Brewers uh, from 2016 to 2018, and then he got injured last July, blew out his arm, Tommy John surgery, missed the entire season. He only came back to the bigs on September 2nd, and since he has 17 and a third innings, one earned run, and even that was in his very first game, and it was a Jordan Alvarez home run. It's not exactly something to be ashamed of. Yeah. 14 strikeouts and one walk from a guy who throws 87 miles an hour. How even. But he was a guy that when we first started getting the, like, I remember a couple years ago when we first started getting uh, expected outcomes and hard hit data for pitchers via StatCast, he was someone who showed up as someone who induced a lot of soft contact. So this is kind of like in line with what we've seen, but now he's kind of taking it to the extreme. Yeah, he is also, uh, if you look at the extension leaderboards, I don't talk about that one too much, but it's basically how far off the mound do you let go of a pitch with the idea being nobody actually throws a pitch 60 feet, six inches. You know, you can sort of decide how close to the mound you're able to get. Uh, and sometimes you're Carter Caps, who goes wild and tries to throw it from like nine feet off the mound. The major league average is approximately six feet. He releases his fastball uh, from 7.2 feet, right? So he's getting a, about a foot closer to the plate. And, and he's six foot five. And he's six foot five. And if you just watch him pitch, there's a little bit of funkiness. You know, there's no good way to quantify deception. But if there was, he would be it. I mean, he would pretty much have to be if he doesn't throw hard, doesn't have great spinner movement on his pitches, and he's doing what he's doing. But there's also this, and there's, it's hard to say like specifically that this correlates to success, but I've heard players talk about it, and I think I would buy it. He works so fast on the mound. I looked this up. Uh, we have numbers on this going back to 2008. And so what I looked for was every pitcher season of at least 17 innings, because that's what he's thrown so far. There are 6,233 of these 17-plus inning pitcher seasons. He right now is taking 16 and a half seconds between pitches. That is tied for the second fastest of all of those 6,233 <laughs> seasons. It will surprise literally nobody to know that Mark Burley on this list is first, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth. That's what Mark Burley did. They're they're not terribly dissimilar, I guess, and like softish tossing lefties. And uh, I don't know. I, I would like to think that that has something to do with well, it. Well, it's that's um, if you look at the other names. The other names on this list are Kirk Sarlos, right-hander, but also Glennon Rush and Wade LeBlanc, who very much fit the profile of soft tossing lefties. So I do wonder if there's something to the idea of like I don't throw hard. I don't need to worry about like ramping up to, you know, like get my fastball up. So I might as well work quickly. And if that actually makes maybe that's like makes hitters uncomfortable because they're not used to to guys. Who work who work this fast? The other lefty who's really interesting. Well, there's two actually because we're going to get to Josh Hader in a second. But Drew Pomerantz, 
who had started 17 games for the Giants through July 16th, and they were ugly. A 6-10 ERA, which is hard to do when you're pitching in San Francisco because that ballpark is so favorable to pitchers. He was actually moved to the bullpen uh, for four relief appearances for the Giants before the trade. That, by the way, is when I looked at the numbers since July 22nd. That's why I did that. That's when Pomerantz first moved to the bullpen, and I wanted to get his time with the Giants as well. So as a starter with the Giants, 6-10 ERA. As a reliever with both teams, 196 ERA. Uh, in 15 games, 28 strikeouts, 8 walks. Some of the stuff is exactly what you think it would be. As a reliever, he has thrown, his fastball is 94.4. As a starter, it was 92. And this shocked me. September 7th against the Cubs, out of the bullpen, he hit 97.5 miles an hour, the highest of his career. Drew Pomerantz can throw 97 now? When did that happen? <laughs> well, when he, apparently when he, when he uh, comes out of the bullpen, he can do that. And he's, he's also done the other thing you would think would happen when he, you move to the bullpen from the rotation. You ditch your bad pitches. As a starter, he threw his fastball 45% of the time, his curveball 35% of the time, and the remaining 20% is a combination of change-ups, cutters, two-seamers. Uh, as a reliever, it's essentially 75-25 four-seam curveball. That is, we've seen this story just so many times. And he, and he has, he has, he's always had a very high, uh, high spin fourteen fastball. So he yes. gets kind of that, 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 that uh, two and a half inches of rise above average. The rise above average. Um, he ranks fifth in, in four seam spin rate amongst lefties with at least a thousand pitches thrown. So um, we're kind of getting the best version of Drew Pomerantz, but he has actually been pretty good before. Made the All Star team. Yeah, once. He, I mean, he was, he was, he was the fifth overall pick in the 2010 draft. It was Harper Tyon. Manny Machado, Christian Cologne, Drew Pomeranz. Wait, I'm trying to remember. Was he like the had to sit on the sidelines for six months being a player to be named later for Ubaldo Jimenez? That is correct. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Drew Pomeranz has been around for a while. Re- originally drafted by the by the uh, by the Indians, then went to the Rockies, and then he bounced around, and then he had a really good half season with the Padres, where I was like, okay. This guy's putting it all together in 2016. I think in one of the early episodes of this podcast, we, we talked about him having a breakout year. I think I had talked to him. That's what it was, yeah. <laughs> um, and then he was the midseason trade to the Red Sox for, at Anderson the time, Espinosa. At the, time oh, the Red God. Sox best pitching prospect, Anderson Espinosa. It was like kind of a big deal. And people were like, oh, do the Red Sox overpay for half season of Drew, Drew Pom- Pomerantz? It turned out no one really won the deal because Espinosa got hurt. It hasn't really. I don't even know what his status is at this point. I know he had one Tommy John. Yeah, he's, Maybe he, another. He's he's missed he's missed some time. But like to see someone like the, with the pedigree of Pomerantz and someone who's had some major league success end up being successful in the bullpen does not surprise me. Wait, he was good with the Red Sox in the rotation for like a minute. Yeah. And then last year, uh, I think he was hurt last year. Like his velocity was down and it was like a, a decent sort of like buy low lottery ticket for the Giants just to have an arm. That didn't work at all um and now now he is like this weapon he's legitimately been one of the best relievers in baseball and at this point i mean i guess i don't know what he wants because that'll inform it a little bit it's hard to see him ever going back to starting again like well i think he's a he's a free agent this offseason i think thanks well yeah he couldn't assign a multi-year deal so it'll yeah my guess is teams are not going to want him as a starter so that decision is going to be made for him uh the uh, we also have to talk about josh Hader. now a couple of weeks ago we did like a very in-depth look at the josh Hader where we were talking about how, yes, he was still striking out a ton of guys, but if you made contact against him, you would crush it. I think at the time he was something like 99th percentile in strikeout rate and first percentile in hard hit rate, which is he's elite at 
getting whiffs and you will crush him if you make contact. And then you might remember uh, on August 17th, this was the game that I thought was going to break baseball. If you remember that 15-14 Nationals-Brewers game where, where Doolittle like, gave up a bunch of home. And they might face each other in the wildcard game. And, yes. <laughs> wow. I hadn't thought about that. That's funny. Um, so through August 17th, which was that game, he had a 3.02 ERA in 56 innings. Then he took a week off. And since then, oh, a little over a month, a ERA of one in 18 innings. That's a pretty big turnaround. I wanted to know what changed. Uh, and this was pretty easy to do because we'd already looked into what the problems were. And it's pretty funny. I, it, I, I know this is not like a real thing that happened, but it sort of seems like he wrote that whole article in Listener Podcast and decided to make the changes we talked about. <laughs> through that game, uh, he was very predictable with his four-seamers, right? So through that game, uh, 85% fastballs. And on the first pitch, 88% fastballs. Since then, 73% fastballs, and on the first pitch, 79% fastballs. The remaining pitches are sliders. His hard hit rate has dropped from 47% to 25%. That is a big deal. That has really changed everything for Josh Hader. It shouldn't be as simple as, hey, stop throwing so many fastballs on the first pitch, but I think at the time we read a whole bunch of quotes from like Marwin Gonzalez and Matt Chapman saying, oh yeah, I was I was hunting for the fastball on the first pitch. I knew it was going to come. And he is so good that if you just take that element away from it, it's really changed everything for him. And it, it's kind of fun to see uh, what has gone on in the, the Brewers' bullpen now because you've got these new guys um, and if you think about the team that got to the postseason last year I looked this up the the NLDS roster last year had 11 pitchers on it and then Adam McAlvey our Brewers.com beat writer uh, went and did a projection for what the wild card game or, or NLDS if they get their roster might be this year and there's only five names that are the same and I'm not just talking about the bullpen I'm talking about the entire pitching staff like Hayter obviously will be there uh, Brandon Woodruff will be there uh, Javi, uh, excuse me, Junior Guerra, Gio Gonzalez, and Freddie Peralta. Those are probably the constants. Remember these guys? Corey Knable, been hurt out for the year. Jeremy Jeffress, who was here this year. He and Knable, Knable and Jeffress were like, they're like, yeah, the, the two of them and, and Hayter were, that, that was, was the trio. That was it. They had Joaquin Soria last year. Uh, Corbin Burns is still around, but I, I got injured or hasn't pitched well. Uh, and Wade Miley, who moved on to, to Houston. And now you're going to have, you know, Pomeranz. Matt Albers, Suter, Alex Claudio, probably Jay Jackson, and Jordan Lyles. I can't believe we're about to talk about Jordan Lyles after Drew Pomerantz. What a what a time to be alive. <laughs> he could be he could be their their wild card game or game one starter, Jordan Lyles. <laughs> I saw this I saw this headline and I feel bad about piling on the Pirates at this point, but there is a headline in the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. Has Jordan Lyles become Garrett Cole 2.0 for the Pirates? Like, oh, yeah, oh steady. Come <laughs> on. Let's pump the brakes a little bit on that. That said, this is a nice job of the Brewers. I mean, the Jordan Lyles has always had kind of a weird career. He was a big prospect. He was a high draft pick. I looked it up. He was in the, the number 38 overall pick in the 2000, uh, like, 12. He, he was on those really bad two, It was the 2008. Was, sorry, it was the 2008 draft. It's been a while. And it's like that draft is like – Kind of a total bust of a draft. Buster Posey at five is by far the best, but even Hosmer is like one of the success stories of that draft. He's like fine. Yeah, exactly. There's just a, a lot of just you know Tim Beckham was first, Pedro Alvarez was second. It was like a pretty bad draft. Um, he was number thirty eight overall. He was a like kind of a big prospect. Terrible for the Astros. Bounced around. Was like we went to Colorado, he, which was he, no good. He's pitching a few places at times. Like oh maybe he's going to be okay. Well, like oh. In, in in retrospect, those bad Astros teams probably shouldn't have called him to the big leagues at 20 years old. Exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, but if you if you look, he was um, he was on the the Padres last year, got traded to the Brewers, and then he signed with the Pirates, and he made 17 starts, uh, 5.36 ERA. He's moved to the Brewers, and he's made 11 starts, 2.45 ERA. This is really cool. The underlying numbers don't 
necessarily say that a ton has changed. Like his pitch types haven't changed a lot. He's actually striking out fewer, 25% with the Pirates and 24% with the Brewers. Um, he he specifically credited the pitch framing. Like he has almost literally said this in some articles, and it's true. If you look at the Pirates, when Lyles was pitching, he received 45% of takes on the edges of the strike zone as strikes. But with the Brewers, that's jumped to 50%. Elias Diaz is not a good framer. Pena and Grandal are very good framers. One thing I'll also note is that he's actually throwing his four-seam fastball less since coming to the Brewers, which I think is interesting only in the context of, like, there's been this narrative around the Pirates. The Pirates are, like, anti-four-seam and they're old school and that they've seen some some pitchers, notably Garrett Cole, leave them, go heavier on the four-seam and succeed. He actually doesn't fit that narrative. You know, it's still possible for uh, Shane Baz to be the best pitcher <laughs> or best player in that trade for the Rays even though Meadows has been very good and Glasnow has been very good, it's it's still possible. There will be a day where we go a podcast without talking about the uh, Chris Archer trade. But today, <laughs> or, today, or the Garrett Cole trade. Today is not that day. Um, this was also kind of cool. Robert Murray was writing about this in The Athletic, and he said, According to sources, the Astros expressed strong interest in the Lyles at the trade deadline only for the Brewers to swoop in at the 11th hour. I think we've come far enough where if you're a pitcher and the Astros want you, that says something about you, especially when you've already failed so terribly there, a different regime many years ago, um, for sure. Are you buying Jordan Lyles as a game one starter? Like, I, I guess you have to, but... But we know that the, we know the game the Brewers are going to try and play, which is not, you know, even... I mean, probably their, their, their best starting pitcher their most talented starting pitcher pitcher is brendan woodruff he's coming off injury he's not gonna be able to go deep into games perfect opener exactly type, so, yeah. i mean they, 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 i i would almost be surprised if the brewers have a starting pitcher go more than five innings uh yeah i think you're right it's That's, not it's not going to be Gio gonzalez like gonzalez another guy gonzalez a guy who can be look look dominant for for three innings but he labors and you don't want him facing any good hitter a third time to the lineup so you have to assume hater's going to pitch in, and Hayden Pomerantz are going to pitch in any game that's even moderately close. If the Brewers get to the World Series, we might get up to a 70% reliever usage <laughs> <laughs> so far this year. It's amazing they've done this two straight years. They made the playoffs without really a, like, a, I guess Woodruff looked like he was going to be, like, a legit Earlier in the year, above average starter. Great, yeah. um, but, they, I mean, he's not that now. He's a good pitcher. He's, he's looked good in his two outings back, but... Short outings. Short outings, because you can't, you know, he's coming off. So it's pretty impressive what they've done. This is probably why Council does deserve uh, manager of the year. We are about to get sucked into October baseball, which means we're going to be talking about the same eight or so teams for the next five weeks. Before we do that, a quick uh, diversion for the Chicago White Sox. Uh, I, you know, looked into the White Sox a great deal as I was working on this ESPN game recently. And I did want to point out that Tim Anderson. Uh, has a 338 batting average, and he is 10 points ahead of DJ LeMahieu. He is probably going to win the American League batting average title. You may appropriately wonder why in the world I would bring that up on a show like this, because I do not care. However, the way he's gotten there has legitimately been fascinating, so we're going to talk about it for a second. Now, Anderson has been uh, very good. He has increased his slugging by 107 points from last year. That's like a top 20 improvement. His hard hit rate is up by 10 points. His strikeout rate is down by 4 points. This is actually a big deal, um, just in the context of the White Sox rebuild. A year ago, I was super down on this rebuild. I looked at them and I said, well, Michael Kovac got hurt. I don't think they have a single major league quality starting pitcher because Giolito at the time looked like a bust. Yes, we were we were, we definitely missed. We we we, we, wrote, we wrote off Giolito well, probably earlier than... Uh, but, but he did make a ton of changes. This is true. He's a different pitcher now. Uh, Moncada was leading the league in strikeouts. Like He was talented, but we weren't sure if he'd put it together. I was, I was very much down on this rebuild, and now... Giolito's a dude 
Mankata has really broken out. He looks awesome. You know, Anderson, I'm not quite buying he's this good, but I'll take him as like a solid shortstop. Uh, Eloy Jimenez has been phenomenal, and they have Nick Madrigal coming. Uh, Luis Robert coming. They Luis des- Robert might be the best player of all of them. They desperately need to sign a starting pitcher or two or three this winter. Um, I'm not saying they are ready to topple, you know, the Indians or the Twins or whatever, but I, I think we have finally reached the light at the end of the tunnel here. I think next year's White Sox, assuming they do something this winter, could actually be fascinating. For sure. It's... um. Uh... Jimenez is the guy that's really caught my attention recently, even though he probably shouldn't be playing the outfield. The guy can we're seeing like why he was considered such a big deal. And Anderson, he's he's made changes. He's actually walking less, but he's a very aggressive he's a very aggressive hitter and it's 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 worked to his benefit. Yeah, Jimenez, by the way, has hit the injured list twice this year, both times for injuries suffered while playing the outfield. So he is poor at catching the ball and also poor at remaining healthy. He is almost certainly uh, going to be a designated hitter. But Anderson, here's why I'm talking about his batting average. He has a 2.5% walk rate. That is the lowest in baseball. 13 walks in 512 plate appearances. I was interested to know how possible is it to have a season as productive as he has had with a walk rate this low? And the answer is, it is almost not possible. I looked at the last 100 years of baseball, and I looked for best weighted runs created plus seasons from guys who had a walk rate of 2.5% or less. Tim Anderson is at 131, so he's at 31% better than league average. The next closest guy was Mickey Rivers in 1976 at 123. That's basically it. (laughs) So how, how do you produce this much without walking uh he by the way will have a 357 on base that will be the second lowest on base mark for a batting average champ behind you can't guess it because i would have never guessed it bill buckner in 1980 with a 353 so there's really only one way to walk that little and be this productive without crushing a ton of homers and that is to have a wildly high batting average on balls and play this is my favorite thing of the entire day i looked up the highest batting average on balls and play seasons in the history of the major leagues. And the top 10 or so are, let's see, nine Hall of Famers and also the weirdest season in baseball history, Jose Hernandez in 2002 for the Brewers. And I'm not kidding. The top of this list is literally Babe Ruth, Rogers Hornsby, George Sizzler, Ty Cobb. You know, like these are these are guys who were so much better than the other hitters at the top. I think that Jose Hernandez season, I'm going to look this up, uh, is I think that's the one where he was like... He struck out like 185 times. They benched him. And they benched him. They benched him because they didn't want him to get to two. That's right. <laughs> and he, had he led the league with 188 strikeouts, and they benched him because they did not want him to become the first... At the time, would have been the first player to strike out 200 times in a season. Yes. And whoa, have we blown past that. We certainly have. So anyway, all those guys I just mentioned, Hall of Famers and also Jose Hernandez, who I don't think that's an indicator of having good luck. I think it was either terrible defenses for like Ty Cobb or great speed or Babe Ruth just mashing baseballs. Uh, Roberto Clemente and Manny Ramirez also on that list at 403. Tied at 403 at the, what's this, 11th or so best batting average in bases, uh, bat of season of all time. Tim Anderson from this year and Yohan Moncada from this year. What is going on on the South side? One interesting thing I will say about Moncada is I, it was one of the reasons I, I kind of, I think that you get, you might see outliers with, um, uh, Babips in this in this era of shifts is that players who are hard to shift or who maybe like have have uh, hitting profiles that are sort of hard to to, to defend against. Um, Moncada especially is a switch hitter. I went and looked up his spray charts from both sides of the plate. You can do on, on baseball savant. You do like the uh, the spray heat map, so you yep. kind of get a good sense. And like he's just like a blob that's like centered around center field. So he like he has no discerning heat map. Well, most hitters nowadays have a very clear like pull the ball in one direction. And Anderson at least. 
when he hits the ball in the air, he hits it everywhere. When he hits on the ground, he hits it straight to shortstop. <laughs> but Moncada has, has a a, uh, uh, a a spray heat map you will not see very often, especially for a switch hitter. I, uh, you know, if you have a four hundred three BABIP these days, you're, you're probably getting fortunate in some way. So I for looked sure. up. I looked up uh, the expected BABIP for these guys. It's just basically you know remove home runs and you look at quality of contact. So Tim Anderson's is three fifty five. You know his actual BABIP is four hundred three. There's your there's your fortunate outcomes right there. Moncada's expected is 386. Proves my point. He's crushing the ball <laughs> on the ground, which maybe that's not great, um, but he's also very fast. I, I mean, I don't want to say I'm all in on him. He's still got a lot of swing and miss in his game, but we talked last year. He was way too passive. He had so many called strikeouts last year. He needed to swing more. He did. The talent is clear. He's only 24, and he's been a decent third baseman. I, he, I come in. He was the top prospect at the time of the Chris yes. Alfred. It was kind of a big deal. Look at this. Exit velocity, 98th percentile. Sprint speed, 72nd percentile. Expected batting average, 92nd. Hard hit rate, 93rd. Expected weight on base, 85th. Expected slugging, 88th. He's this is this is the guy that was traded for Chris Sale. Like he is, he's 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 real. He, this is the breakout, and they they will probably I assume retain Jose Abreu just because like it seems like he's going to play there for the rest of the time. I, I looked this up the other day. He is leading the league in RBIs. You shouldn't care about that. I mean, he's had a very good season. He is also leading the league in plate appearances with runners on base by like 30. So <laughs> that's where RBIs come from, opportunities. Daniel Palka? Yeah, we should. We, Daniel Palka. Before we move on to playoff talk, we should mention, we talked about Palka a couple weeks ago on the podcast, how he had... Uh, Gone the whole year. What was it? He had like was one for his one for his first like fifty or something. Well, and then two for his first seventy one. Uh, in in the last week or so, he's seven for eighteen. Last night, two home runs to maybe single handedly crush the Cleveland playoff hopes at one hundred and thirteen point eight miles an hour off the bat and one hundred six point four. Daniel Palka, and he, the Palka King of the Midwest. And he's he he he. I was watching the game. He absolutely crushed both and did like the most nonchalant bat flip as if like I'm sure inside he was like. Thank goodness I got through the season with hitting at least one home run, but he looked so cool as if like, oh yeah, like I, I do this all the time. <laughs> I mean, he did hit 30 home runs last year, so it's not like he can't hit home runs. Um, the White Sox in September are crushing the ball. They have the second best weighted on base, the fifth best expected weighted on base. September, you know, lousy uh, pitching, 40-man rosters and everything, but I'm in. I'm in. I think... Uh, uh, pending a good winter, I'm in. Uh whether or not this is a, a, a whether or not you think this is a good signing or not, uh, I think Dallas Keuchel on the White Sox next year is like a, is not a take it to the bank, but that is like a fit that uh, Zach Wheeler, um, Zach Wheeler, or would be would be the they're not going to get Cole right, like they should, but fifteen teams should, they're not all going to get him exactly. But um, Bumgarner is not going to go there, I don't think. Strasburg could opt out, but I think I think Strasburg would only opt out if he thought that he could either get a bigger deal from the Nationals or get a bigger deal in Southern California. Wait, before we move on, can I distract you for a second? Sure. You Darvish has been unbelievable. The Cubs are in a very weird spot right now. Four years, $81 million left on his deal. He has an opt-out. Does he even consider it? It's interesting. He's 33. I, it now maybe, some injuries. Maybe you should write this as a story. <laughs> I think you should write this as a piece for the, uh, for the, for the, it's for like, the website. You have to at least... Think about it. No it's one's, not the strongest pitching market. We've been because yeah, the people have been kind of writing off like foregone conclusion. Oh, Strasburg and JD Martinez might opt out. Rosa Chapman might opt out, but no one else will opt out. Might opt out. Now you think about. Now you mention it it's with so the second good. half. Darvish had anyway. Here, here, here's the conspiracy theory. You, you've been you've been assigned this story. Okay, I'm going to drop a quick conspiracy theory. Joe Madden's going to get hired by the Padres. Padres are run by AJ Preller, who used to work in Texas, where you Darvish was. He's going to opt out. And go to Texas, uh, excuse me, to San Diego, who badly needs a very good starting pitcher. Um, 
Anyway. If that happens, uh, I promise. Okay, as, at the moment, right now, we are only guaranteed, not guaranteed, but essentially guaranteed, of one playoff matchup, right? We know Yankees and Twins are going to happen. It's not even, and it's not even locked in. So, like, you're, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put a little asterisk here because the Astros' magic number to clinch the top seed in the American League is one. So, if they win one game or the Yankees lose one game this weekend, they, it's, so it's essential. It's, it's essential our, our next show will likely not come until after the wild card games. So we're gonna we're gonna make the best of what we have right now. And I'm already pre annoyed by Yankees Twins takes. Like I don't even know what the number is. How many times have the Twins lost to the Yankees in the postseason? Like. Six. Uh, it happened. Well, it happened in the wild card game, two thousand seventeen. Uh, it happened in two thousand ten. Happened two thousand nine. Happened two thousand three, two thousand four. So five times. You knew all that off the top. Of I, your l- head. I looked it up earlier. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And they, I mean, the last two times were well, there was a wild card game, and then two times before that were a sweep, and then the one before that they'd won. They won the final three games. I think they've won ten straight playoff games against the Twins. But this is going to get so annoying. It is going to get annoying, especially since that series won't start until Friday. And it could get locked. <laughs> and it could get locked yeah. in tonight. We could have oh, a week god. of this. Oh god! Oh god! But I'm not saying the Twins are going to win. But this is a different. This oh, is, I agree. It's I, not even just a different Twins team. Obviously, a different Twins team. But the Twins of the mi- early to mid 2000s were kind of a throwback team. They were kind of a hit for contact. They did not have pitchers who threw very hard. They, they did not strike out hitters. They did not strike out a lot. And they were many times often just like not even that good of a team. Like in, for example, if you go back um, in 2017, they won 85 games, 2010, 94 games, 2009, 87 games, 2004, 92, 2003, 90. So they, they were good teams, not dominant teams. This twins team has 99 wins, the most by a twins team since 1965. I would be interested to know, and it's easy to look up. I just don't have it in front of me. How many of those matchups against the Yankees, the twins came into it with fewer wins? Like would have been the underdog, you know what I mean? Probably several. <laughs> like, like the, what you're about to say, like those are all good reasons. What what is not going to be a good reason is saying, well, they didn't win before, so they can't win now. Like it matters at all. What I don't know, Jorge Posada and Brad Radke or Joe Mays did against one another like ten years ago. And I will, I want to bring up one uh, thing that I found really interesting when I was looking it up because the Yankees' biggest weakness probably as a pitching staff is they give up a lot of homers, and the Twins, as we know, hit a lot of homers. They are the first team to hit 300 home runs in a season. And a lot of people will probably say, oh, well, of course the Yankees give up a home run. Look at the short porch in right field at Yankee Stadium. But but <laughs> the Yankees are tied with the Angels for most home runs allowed on the road this year. I just looked this up because I'm working on a piece about home runs. And the Yankees, uh, the split is something like 57 to 43%, I think, in terms of where their home runs have come, like more coming on the road. They are 24th, I think, in Major League Baseball in terms of how many home runs they've allowed. So like 24th is bad. It's near It's near the bottom. No team has won the World Series in the bottom half of pitching home runs allowed since the 2006 Cardinals. So I'm counting the Yankees out right now. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's when you when you if nothing else, when you hear the takes about oh the Yan- Yankees you know home runs yada 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 they give up home runs wherever they play. Whereas the Astros, for example, the Astros are among playoff teams. The Astros have allowed the second most home runs, but they're 25th in road home runs allowed, which suggests their home run Short problems porches, are, in, are entirely <laughs> Minute Maid Park related. That's how Justin Verlander can lead the league in home runs allowed and still possibly win the the Cy Young Award. The, the Twins are first. In baseball, in barrels by a lot. They've got 439. The Yankees are second with 389. I did not realize that gap. Wow. 50 um, barrels for uh, people who have not listened to the show many times. Barrels is like the perfect combination of of launch angle and exit velocity that you get a baseball at. So leading the league in barrels is good. The Twins also lead, lead the league in expected weight on base. The Yankees are second. So uh, this is 
a really dynamic Twins offense. And I'm not saying they're going to win. Their starting pitching is definitely not that great. They've got some interesting relievers. Uh, Tyler Duffy has been, been awesome, basically the best reliever in baseball he's, for the last he's, month. He's been on my list here of like guys to talk about for about six weeks. We just haven't done it yet. If you go in fan graphs and you look up uh, FIP, Field Independent Pitching, in the last 30 days, uh, Tyler Duffy has a negative FIP. Like it's so good that like he basically better than like he should basically should have allowed negative runs. Right. We we love Rogers. Uh, Duffy's been very good. Hey, you know what would be cool if they still had uh, I don't know Nick Anderson and Ryan Presley in that bullpen. That would be interesting. Um. So anyway, that's that that series is probably going to get the most hype of any series. Um. Simply because of the history there, and it's the Yankees, and they're going to be two teams who both will probably go into the game with a hundred wins, which is you know kind of rare for a division series to have two. 100 win teams facing each other it's going to be a lot of fun like that's i guess i'm looking forward to all the potential matchups but i do think that one's maybe the most interesting and that's the thing is this this is the only matchup we can really talk about because you know you'll, you'll have the astros playing the wild card winner and we don't know it'll most likely be the looks like the indians probably not going to happen it'll be the twins or the, uh, the the rays of the a's those will uh, both be pretty fun series yeah um and then the national league it looked like braves and cardinals looked like a lock but the brewers keep winning and they could they could win the central the Brewers, oh yeah, they're right. So the Brewers end the season in Colorado and the Cardinals end the season against the Cubs. I have no idea what the Cubs are going to look like because Joe Madden's going with the FU lineup. Like, I mean, you have to, I kind of assume, as I said, it's really hard to, even the terrible Rockies teams, it's just a tough place to play. It's really hard to get a sweep there. So I kind of assume if the Cardinals win two games, they will do it. But yeah. it's, well, obviously we'll know more. We'll have a better sense after tonight. And then, so it's, and then you have the Dodgers versus. The wild card winner, which could be the Cardinals or the Brewers or the Nationals. So, um, we are we're not going to go through every series because we don't know what it's going to be, but we can at least like guess some World Series teams because by next time we talk, little postseason will have started. I said at the beginning of the season, Dodgers Astros. I guess I should stick with that. I think I, I think I might have I think I said Astros. I might have said Cubs. I honestly can't remember. I should have looked it up for the show. If if Ryan Presley is looks is, is himself and he's looked okay since coming off the IL it's it's I mean the, the Astros are the best team uh, yes. their only possible weakness is bullpen depth um and and a fourth he, starter he's sort of their linchpin but like you can kind of fake I mean yeah Miley's been pretty been pretty bad I'm not sure what they're going to do with that they might they might do an opener for Miley would not surprise me if they do that for game four but I would take the it's I mean the Astros and the Dodgers are are, are clearly the best team so it's sort of hard to pick pick against them yeah I think the Brewers, this run has been a lot of fun. I, I still can't say I trust them very much, especially without Christian Yelich. Yeah. That's a lot to ask. Um, the Nationals have been playing great for a while. Their bullpen is still a mess. I don't trust the bullpen, but you know Rendon and Scherzer and Strasburg and Juan Soto is awesome. I, I'm still taking the Dodgers. I don't feel super confident about it, or at least not as confident as I once did. They, they have their own issues. I would like to see. I would like to see a, a Dodgers Braves series a lot. I think the Braves are a lot of fun. Acuna's injury. Hopefully it's not serious because I like to see him at full strength. Um, the Dodgers, the, the Braves are dangerous. They've got you know Donaldson with Donaldson playing as well as he is and Acuna and Freeman. Freeman. Yep. It's it's a dangerous offense. They've totally remade their bullpen. It's still not great, but it's it doesn't scare you like it did early in the season. And they they I mean to me they're clearly the second best team in the uh, National League. Probably to, to me I'd almost put the the Nats third. The Cardinals. Uh, our research guru Andrew Simon pointed this out to me. There are only three teams in baseball who do not have a player with an OPS plus of more than 120. Tigers. Tigers, Marlins, Marlins. and Cardinals. Really? Ozuna and Goldschmidt are both below that line, huh? Yes. Wow. So the, Card- what you want. <laughs> the Cardinals lineup is, uh, you know, the names look good, but in terms of performance this year with Goldschmidt and Carpenter being down and Ozuna being not 
particularly good since he got hurt. It's their best by OPS plus their best hitter is Tommy Edmond. That's not what you want. No. <laughs> so who's been pretty good, mind you, but still like but okay. You don't you don't get you're not gonna get excited in postseason series. No, no team is like, oh, we got a game plan around Tommy Edmond. Like, what are we gonna do? So I think a Dod- I think a Dodgers uh Braves NLCS would be a lot of fun, but I you need I really want to see a healthy Acuna. A couple weeks ago, I tweeted uh, that I thought it would be a Dodgers Astros rematch, and I had a whole bunch of Dodger fans reply to me like, "Why? Why would you put that on us? Like, I don't I don't think they want that or could handle that. You know, I mean, it's gonna be tough. You go to the World Series for the third year in a row, uh, you want to win it. Dodgers Astros I thought was a lot of fun. It was it was a weird series two years ago. Remember that was when it was 105 degrees in LA and there were tons of homers in Houston. It had two epic games. It had yeah. Game two, where Marlon Gonzalez had the game tying home run, yeah. Kenley Jansen, and then Game and five, which game is five like, Powerball, which would <laughs> like, be like maybe the best game in World Series history. <laughs> that was insane. I said I said Dodgers Astros at the beginning of the year. I think they're the best teams. I'll stick with it. I will say, um, just from like a, a baseball history point of view, Dodgers Yankees would be super cool. It really would. we haven't had it since 1981. I know people think like these teams are in there all the time. It's been. 38 years since we've had a Dodgers Yankees World Series. Well, the the one interesting thing around the Dodgers, okay, there's, there's Justin Turner's injury, which could, you know, you don't know what they're going to do with. I assume he's going to be on the roster, but like he's going to be compromised. So I'm not sure. He may be, end up being a bench bat, um, which is sort of an interesting subplot. But they're starting rotation, right? I mean, Ryu for most of the season was their best pitcher. Kershaw obviously is Kershaw. Yeah. Bueller's I, probably the most talented. I think Bueller's probably at this moment, Bueller's probably their best pitcher. How would you line up those three pitchers to start a series? Oh, we're assuming they're playing the wild card, I guess, right? So yeah. that'll be the probably Brewers, the Brewers and the Nationals. The Brewers and the Nationals. Well, I think probably Bueller is going to start number one. It's tough to like tell Kershaw he's not the first guy, you know. So I don't, I don't know if Roberts would actually do that, but I, I would probably go Bueller number one because I think he's the best pitcher. Um, I. It's interesting for number two. We talked about this a little bit this morning. Like Kershaw is a better pitcher than Ryu. I don't think that's too controversial uh, but do you want to start the, the road part of the series with Ryu when he's been like only okay recently I'm not sure you do so maybe he starts at home and Kershaw's on the road yeah and our uh, our MLB.com Dodgers reporter Ken Gurnick did a did a mailbag about this he could have addressed this question one point he made that I thought was interesting was basically that their pro- game four will probably be you know if necessary would be like a Rich Hill slash bullpen game because you know, yeah. Hill would pitch, but Dustin May, he's Tony not Gonsolin, he's not going to pitch. Kenta Maeda, like, yeah. But the point is that they want to make sure that their bullpen was as fresh as possible because there's no off day after Game Three, and that they may want to put pitch Kershaw on that game because they feel like okay, road game in the playoffs, they trust him more than Ryu to give them innings and potentially keep the you know because while yes Kershaw's had some you know famous you know p- famous bad starts the postseason he's also had a lot of good starts nobody remembers though but he has had a lot of good starts (laughs) we were at one at city field (laughs) that's right we were (laughs) on short rest i think he uh shut down the mets over like seven innings in game four of the uh 2015 nlds um we were at that together yeah Boy, why do I just have no recollection of that? I don't know. I'm I not, it was not a memorable. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not 100 sure that's true, but uh, we'll we'll figure it out later. I am, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's our show for this week. Uh, we'll we'll probably not have a show next week because I'll be out in Oakland or somewhere doing the wild card game. This is the second screen Statcast broadcast on ESPN two. Uh, so please tune into that. I think you will like it. We had a lot of fun last year. That is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com Statcast podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.